The word determination means firmness of purpose or resolve. Uh, those who are determined are not thrown off by outside influences. They're focused on the task at hand. Uh, yesterday was Veterans Day, and so we appreciate, appreciate those who have had the determination and fortitude to fight for our nation's freedom in the past, and also those who continue to do so in the present. They cannot be worried about civilian matters when they are focused on the task at hand. They need to be focused on the task that they have been assigned. And in the same way, we're going to see Jesus' determination, even more so than anyone in the history of the world, who is determined to follow the path that God had laid out for him. And we're going to see how he uses that to call us to follow after him, the path that God has for us as well. Uh, the Christian life is a difficult one. Uh, while there are abundant spiritual blessings in Christ, there are certainly trials for the follower of Christ, follower of Jesus. Although many of today's megachurch pastors like to make following Jesus something that doesn't require any sacrifice or doesn't require any hardships, maybe even leads to wealth and prosperity and health, that is not what Jesus does. Jesus does no such thing in Scripture. Join us today as we ask and answer the difficult question, are you determined to follow? Let's read. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. If you have your copy of God's Word, please read along with me. If not, it's up here. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. But when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the, bed, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the, God, the kingdom of God. Yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, your word is difficult. Um, it is difficult to preach. It is difficult sometimes to read. But God, your Holy Spirit can help clarify what we read and help us to apply it to our lives. That your Holy Spirit can, can open up our, our minds to understand it and our hearts to be changed by it. And so God, I just pray that you're here in a mighty way. Um, as I preach, I pray that you speak through me and that you open up the eyes and ears of those who listen and that we are left today changed by your word, not because of any great ability that I have as a... a sinful man before a holy God, but because of how great that you are, because of how wonderful your spirit is that, that leads us and guides us and sanctifies us, and how great you are, Lord Jesus, to save us, Lord. Uh, God, open up our hearts and minds. Help us to, to be focused on your word today. We love you, praise you, and thank you, and amen. Today we're going to see three ways disciples must follow Christ with determination, and the first is true disciples follow Jesus with determined focus, with determined focus. We're going to start back in 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. 
As we've gone through the, this gospel, uh, Luke has provided us with information in the first couple of chapters that was not in any of the other gospels. We see Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. There's a lot of overlap between them. But the first few chapters, we, we don't see a lot of overlap. Uh, we see Luke's magnif- Mary's Magnificat. We see him bring all of these things that the other gospel writers either don't go into much detail or don't have at all. But then we went through a lot of the last chapters. We've had a lot of parallels, and I've referred back to Mark and, and Matthew, and we've kind of taken those and been able to really put together really nice pictures of these accounts. However, we're entering a, a section, the next 10 chapters or so, it's going to be a, a pivot point in Luke's gospel. Uh, where most of this is actually original to Luke. Um, There's a few overlaps here and there. We'll see just a a little bit of an overlap today. Uh, But we're going to see a pivot point for the whole gospel. This is when we see Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. If we look at Jesus' ministry, uh, he, he, he does a lot of ministry in Galilee. He started in Judea, gets kicked out of there. Remember, he got kicked out of Nazareth, his own hometown. They I try to kill him. Uh, and so, so he's, he's out of there. He ends up setting up shop in Capernaum in Galilee. And that's where he does most of his ministry. Uh, the majority of the years of his ministry are in that section. But now we're going to see him go from Galilee and start on a long journey to the cross. A long journey to Jerusalem. So, so we're, we're going to have chapters 10 till the end, 24. And they're really going to encompass like the last six months or so of Jesus' life. So although there's, although there's going to be a ton of stuff to go through, we're going to see him do miracles still. We're going to see him do some amazing things. We're going to see a lot of parables. We see a lot of teaching that he does there. But what we, we get this word here, set, for set his face. And that word set means sterizo, which means determined. That's where I came up with determined in our, in our title here. It means determined, steadfast, or firmly fixed in place. He is determined to go to Jerusalem, determined to follow through on his, on his journey to the cross. So as we continue through the rest of this, remember that Jesus is on the road. Kind of picture Jesus walking along different roads. And we're going to see he doesn't have a place to lay his head. Uh, you know, you're like, well, in, in Capernaum, he stayed different places. Well, now we're going to see him as almost a nomad for these last few months of his ministry. We also see that Luke tells us as the days draw near for him to be taken up. We see that word taken up, that phrase. Uh, this speaks to the death, resurrection, and even more so to the ascension of Christ. Uh, Luke, in his other book, Acts, gives us a great uh, a scriptural description of the ascension in Acts 1, 9 through 11. Let's read that here together. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you uh, into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I love that account. Uh, in the same way, he will come back. Like they're, they're, they're looking up in heaven. They just watched him, boom, go up uh, in, into heaven, ascend into heaven. And these two likely angels that are there say, hey, what are you looking at? He's not coming back right now. But when he does come back, he will come back in the same way. And may we, may we find our determination and strength through the power of the Holy Spirit as we think about that. That yes, he did ascend Yes, he, he is at the right hand of the Father right now, but there is coming a day, church, coming a day when he will return for his bride. Amen. Praise God. Let it be so. And next we see number two, true disciples follow Jesus with determined faith. With determined faith. I'm going to read verse 52 again. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and enter, entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. 
if, if you haven't read the Bible a whole lot, you listen to this, and you're like, oh, okay, he's heading to a different place, he's on his way. But, but if you know much about the Samaritans, this was a big deal for the Jews to go anywhere near Samaria. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews, and the Samaritans despised the Jews as well. Now, the Samaritans, although mono, monotheistic, like the Jews, although they had a lot of pagan intertwining, broke away from Jerusalem and broke away from the Bible. Uh, they actually shaved down the Bible to the first five books, the Torah, and they even edited it and made it their own. So the temple no longer was in Jerusalem. The temple was Mount Gerizim. And so they, they made a lot of changes and tried to kind of synergistically include their way of worship and with how they wanted to do things that ignored Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem and do things the way that they wanted to do them. They, they had intermarried with the Assyrians and thus broke God's command of being holy and set apart. And because of these great differences, by the time of the New Testament, there was great division between these two groups. They hated each other. And it's in this atmosphere that Jesus sends messengers to a Samaritan village. And like, well, why, why do you go that way? Well, if you pull up a map, there's multiple reasons. Obviously, you know, God in sovereignty wanted to go there. But if you're in Galilee and you want to get to Jerusalem, which is Judea down here, what do you need to go through usually? The easiest way is to go through Samaria. And so, you know, they're in Galilee. They, they, they could just go straight down. And we know that's not exactly why, just that it was that easy. But that would have been the quickest way. We're going to see that most Jews, almost all Jews, went the long way around to, to avoid Samaria because they looked at the dust in Samaria as the dust of the Gentiles, even worse maybe than the Gentiles, didn't want to go anywhere near there. And we're going to see that Samaritans felt the same and didn't want them coming through that way either. And that's where we get to verses 53 through 56. But the people, this is the Samaritans in that village, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's pretty tough. And, and he turned and rebuked them, and they went, to an, went on to another village. So inter interestingly, we see that Jesus is not received by the Samaritans because he set, set his face on Jerusalem. They obviously rejected Jerusalem as the temple, and they had disdain toward Jesus because of that. We're actually not told that they have disdain to Jesus because of who he is or what he'd done. I mean, they may have heard some of the accounts. They probably had heard a lot of the accounts. There was part of them probably were like, hey, this, is, this guy's got some pretty amazing things he's done. But obviously their disdain for Jerusalem outweighed their curiosity of who Jesus was, and they said, no, you can't come this way. Then verse 54 shows us that racism is much older than the past couple hundred years. Uh, we see the sons of thunder, as they were affectionately known, James and John, respond with rage. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven and just consume them all? Wow, that's, a, that's pretty harsh. Let's just consume the whole village because they won't let us go through here. And I will say this. In their defense, they had just witnessed, remember the inner three, James, John, and Peter, just witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. And who was there? Remember Moses and Elijah. Oh, you all listen, that's good. And if you remember Elijah back in 1 Kings 1, the apostate king Ahaziah had sent men to come get Elijah and bring him to him. And so there's a soldier with 50 men that comes, says, come with me to come see King, king Ahaziah. He is summoned you, and Elijah does what? He calls down fire from heaven, the heaven that consumes all 51 of them. Then another man, along with 50 more, come, and the exact same thing happens. Boom, now you got 102 guys that just got fried. And then finally, the last guy comes, and he falls on his face, and he's like, don't, don't do it again, you know, and, and 
God tells them he can go with them at that point. So James and John were ready to replicate this event. Uh, it was obviously fresh in their minds as they thought about Elijah and calling on fire. And it's like, Jesus, we can handle business. We know how this thing works and their nice temper that they have. It's just amazing you see John. Because we, we, we always think of John as the, the apostle of what? Love. You read First John, love, 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 love. Obviously, he's a lot older at that point. He's matured a lot. Because we see actually in the Bible, uh, in, the, in the Gospels, that James and John are not always the most loving uh, they're, they're the hotheads. They're the temper guys. Let's just kill them all. Let's just drop, drop the fire down. Let's see. But we see Jesus, he rebukes James and John after this comment. You see, Jesus had a different plan for this people. Uh, Jesus was not done with this group that, that rejected him because of their disdain for Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus is not really pleased with Jerusalem as well. Uh, Jesus will go on in Luke 21, 5 through 6 to predict the downfall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which did happen. And interestingly, we actually see that the Samaritans are some of the first converts to Christianity in the book of Acts, chapter 8. Who knows if some from this community that rejected Jesus because of Jerusalem at this point actually didn't come to a saving knowledge of Christ. I think we can learn from that. Don't be so quick to give up on people, even those that seem hateful, even those that seem completely bent against following Christ, because they may be only moments away from being broken and saved by Jesus. Finally, we get to the meat of our, more of the meat of our discussion today and, and uh, our third point. True disciples follow Jesus with determined fervor, with determined fervor. And this last point is going to be broken into three different subpoints that we're going to kind of go through. This is because we're going to be given three different scenarios, three different men uh, that Christ encounters on this road that he has begun to travel to the cross. We're not told what the final response of any of these men are, which is you know, always hard for us that really want to know what happened. Like, well, what, what happened? Did, did, they, did, they, did they follow through or did they bounce? And we're not told. I think we're not told intentionally because these questions are for us as well. So as we go through this section, ask yourself these things. The first one, are, are we willing to live selflessly? That brings us to our first one. As they were, and if we read verse, verses 57 through 58 again here, this is our first encounter. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This first interchange introduces us to someone who actually approaches Jesus. This guy actually comes after Jesus. We're actually told in Matthew eight nineteen. this is one of the small parallels. Most of this isn't in Matthew, but this little part is. This guy's a scribe. So he, you know, he's kind of a big deal. He, he really wants to, to learn. This guy expresses this desire and you think Jesus would be excited. Wow, scribe, he wants to learn under Jesus. This guy's talented at writing. I mean, this would have been a guy you might pick up on your team. Hey, why don't you start writing the Bible? This, guy, this guy's a good writer. You know, you could have, this is the easiest kind of evangelism. This kind of comes, comes right to you. Who is Jesus? Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever had someone come in and ask you how they can follow Jesus? It's pretty rare, but it does happen. Every once in a while when God is working on somebody, God is drawing someone, but maybe the, maybe the better question is, what would you do if it happened? Do you know how to share the gospel with somebody? If they did come and ask you, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? If that makes you pee yourself a little bit, sorry, I know my wife's going to say you shouldn't have said that. But if, 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 if that makes you a little nervous, I'll hear that one later. No, just kidding. Um, you know, if that makes you really, really nervous, I've got to make sure you all are awake. This keeps, keeps everybody awake, my, my dad jokes. Um, if that makes you super nervous and you are terrified if someone asks you, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I can't articulate the gospel. That's a big deal. If you can't articulate the gospel, do you know the gospel? 
Do you understand who Jesus is? I pray that you, that, you, that you are equipped. And if you're not equipped really well to do that, well, join us. So first December, we're going to go and hand out some stuff in our areas in evangelistic outreach. And in January, I have a couple of our guys lead a, an evangelistic training, kind of like we did earlier this year. So and I would be happy to go through things as well with you. But we come to verse 58, and Jesus' response is not what you would expect. You expect him to be like, yeah, let's add to our posse. You know, we're, we're heading, heading to the cross. But you see, Jesus recognized this scribe does not understand what it takes to follow Jesus. Scribes of this era would most, most likely sit under a teacher, and they would learn from this teacher, and they would derive their street cred, we'll call it, their credibility from that teacher, and they would do what their teacher did, and they would act like their teacher acted, and they would be trained under that. We hear Paul name drop Gamaliel for who, from who he was trained at, so he could kind of name drop that, like, hey, I'm well trained because I'm trained by this guy. Well, this scribe's coming to Jesus being like, I want to be able to name drop Jesus. I, I want to learn under him. But Jesus is like this guy. He doesn't understand what it means to be trained by Jesus. He, he doesn't want to really follow after me. He just wants the pomp of being able to say, I was trained by Jesus. He doesn't want to go through the fire that is coming. So Jesus lets him know that his popularity would not be what he thought it might be. He lets him know that the, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head doesn't have a home. Are you sure? You, you want to count the cost before doing this. And John MacArthur, when speaking about this gentleman, states the Lord saw through his professed commitment driven by his desire for comfort and confronted him with reality. Following Jesus requires selflessness. Uh, one must be willing to give up pride, selfish ambition, and the praise of the, war, of the world in order to follow Christ. And I think this is one of those situations where we see, again, like we mentioned, other churches sometimes that make this look really easy. Oh, you know, you can come do this. Come, you're going to look like me if you do this. And, you know, if you're, a, if you're looking at the, a lot of the pastors that preach this, then you're going to be, you know, very good looking and you have skinny jeans and you're going to, you know, be attractive. You're going to be wealthy. You're going to have your own private jet. And so people look at that and they're like, okay, if that's what it means to follow Christ, I'm all in. Well, Jesus is like, no, no, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus is maybe that missionary in the middle of nowhere that gets killed. You, you, you may be impoverished. You may be persecuted. You may be slandered. It may not turn out as well as you think. And Jesus wants this guy to know, hey, it might be a tough road, and it's going to be a tough road for him. Then number two, we see that true disciple, disciples follow Jesus with fervor by, willing, by being willing to live sacrificially. By being willing to live sacrificially. Let's see this next interchange in 59 and 60. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now we see Jesus doing the calling. The first guy approached Jesus. Now Jesus hollers out at this guy as they walk along the road. And he urges this man to follow him. And the man comes back with saying, hey, I've got a father to bury. And Jesus' response seems pretty harsh from the outset, right? Let the dead bury their own dead. Like, what? What are you, what's, what's that supposed to mean? That's a pretty tough thing. In essence, he's telling the man to allow those who are worldly, meaning spiritually dead, to do the things of the world. And the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is drawing near, and this man needs to be laser-focused on the ministry. He's going to focus uh, you know, on the cross, on the road to the cross. He's going to follow Jesus. Time is of the essence. Again, this seems pretty, pretty harsh as, as taking care of a loved one. Burying a loved one is actually a good thing. Uh, it was something that was, that was 
approved, uh, was encouraged, was even required at times. Uh, but, you know, when touching a body was unclean, as Numbers 19.11, this was one of the times where it was okay. You could, you could go ahead and do this. Uh, many commentators have different interchanges, different ideas when they, when they address this. But it's obvious one thing. This guy's dad is not dead right now. It's not like, oh, he's laying there and Jesus calls him. Because actually, at that point, within hours of death, they would be carried out of the city and would be buried because of the cleanliness issue. So it's not like they would just leave them there for three days and then have a funeral. and then do, No, like they, they would take them straight out and bury them immediately. So it's obvious that this, man, this man's dad is still alive at this point. Who knows if this was going to be days, hours, weeks, months. We don't know how much longer this father had. We're not, we're not given that data here and those things. It could have been quite some time. And some commentators even go so far as to say the man's father was just aged. He was aged, and he was maybe getting closer to death. And this man wanted to st- stick around to make sure he got his inheritance. That was pretty common in that time. They, you, you need to be there. And then he, if he was the firstborn, he would get most of the inheritance. And so if he's out following Jesus, he's not going to get that. Uh, whatever the case, we don't know. But Jesus urged the man to make a decision at that time. Are you going to follow? Follow me. So often people say they'll make a decision to follow Christ in the future when it's more convenient for them heard many college students say things like that. Well, let me just enjoy college, be able to party, do what I want to do, and then I'll follow Jesus. Or someone who's just starting out in their career, and you know, I don't have time to go to church. I need to be working, climbing the corporate ladder. I've got to get to this point, and so I don't have time to really follow Jesus. I'll think about that more when I get older. Or kids, well, I'm, you know, I'm just a kid. I don't really want to think about this. I'll, I'll think about that when I get older and quote-unquote wiser, to be honest you. You, you get less wise as you're further away from God. And as you grow up, uh, whenever you aren't saved as a child, you, you, you add a lot of foolishness to your mind in the meantime. Now is the time for salvation, as Second Corinthians 6.2 says. And the other thing that is kind of frightening is that we've talked about this multiple times, that God must draw us in order for us to be saved. It says that God does draw us all, but doesn't say he draws us all at all times. And so you may reject him, and then he may not draw you again. And that is a super difficult and scary thing. When you feel that drawing of the Holy Spirit, you need to respond. You need to, get, you need to be saved at that moment. You need to embrace Christ. Salvation is freely given for all, but no one can come unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit, as John six forty four says. Following Jesus requires selflessness and a willingness to sacrifice. Lastly, we see... The true disciples follow Jesus with fervor by being willing to live single-mindedly. Being willing to live single-mindedly. Let's read 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now we come to our final interaction. We've seen these three men. Now here's this last one that Jesus Comes, to, comes up to, and this man approaches Jesus and says, I need to say farewell to those at home. And Jesus responds by referencing the account of Elisha, not Elijah, we just saw Elijah calling fire down. This is Elisha who followed Elijah. I don't know if you're following me. There's a, there's a J in one of them, and there's an SH in the other, if that helps. And we'll have it up here now, because we're going to have 1 Kings 19, 19 through 20, and we'll, you'll see why it's confusing. All right, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 young, or 
twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the, uh, of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. It's amazing. Don't you love just the beauty of the whole scripture? A lot of people talk about how the Bible, Old Testament isn't important. Well, Jesus used the Old Testament a lot, and here we see a direct reference to this account as Jesus is answering about the plow. And we see here that we're told by this account that, G, that, that Jesus, we're not told whether in this account whether Jesus responded that this guy could go back and tell his family goodbye. He very well may have. We don't know. We just know that he, may, he wants to make sure this guy understands the true, true cost of following him. But we see in the case of Elisha that he didn't go back to say goodbye to his family because he had doubts about being called by God or what he was going to do. He literally went back to sever the relationships with his past. And if we look there, what did he do with the yoke, the wooden yoke? He cut it into pieces and did what? He made a fire. And what did he do with the oxen? He cut them into pieces and sacrificed them to the Lord and burned it up. In essence, what he was saying was, okay, God, you have called me. This is what I used to be. This is what I used to do. It's cut off, completely severed. I can't go back to that because I don't even have yoke or oxen anymore to even go and plow anymore. He says, I am following completely after you. You see, Jesus isn't saying this guy can't go back and tell, tell his family goodbye, that it's sinful before being called to be a missionary in the Congo to tell your family bye and I love you. I don't, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But what he's saying is, are you completely focused on the task at hand? Or are you focused on worldly things? Even worldly relationships, as we'll talk about in a while. By burning the yokes and sacrificing his oxen, in essence, he was saying, I'm not looking back at my former life. I will not go back there. I'm all in. And as the old song says, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Note here that Jesus, again, isn't saying we can't say goodbye to our family, but he was wanting a single-minded devotion to himself. In verse 62, looking at it again, <coughs> we see Jesus refer to plowing. And when one would plow in biblical times, they would have to set their eyes on a certain fixed object. So they'd be holding the yoke, the oxen would be pulling, and they had to focus on that one object and not take their eyes off of it. If they did, the plowing would be ruined. It would be back and forth. It would not be a straight line. You, you would end up not being able to plant all the crops you need to plant for the season. So it was super important that you did not take your eyes off that. And the worst thing you could do, it was bad to look to the side. The worst thing you could do was to look that way. Uh, because once you look that way, you were going almost the wrong direction. You would almost be going at 180 and going away from the direction that you need to go, and it would completely ruin everything. And using this analogy, Jesus looks at this man and says, you need to be single-mindedly focused on the task at hand. We're not, again, not told what this man did as well, whether he followed or not. But each of these three interchanges show us, shows us the hindrances that can befall those who are called to follow Jesus Christ. Because there is a cost of following Jesus. We're all offered salvation by, through Jesus Christ. It is a free gift of God, not by works, so that a man can boast. It's not something we work for, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. Yes, Jesus paid our penalty on the cross, so that we, don't ha we didn't have to. 
we put our faith in him. However, Jesus is clear that there is a cost to following him, and that cost is giving of yourself. It's dying to yourself, dying to what you want and living to what he wants, repenting of one's sins, turning from your old self, severing ties with your old life in order to move forward. Severing ties with sin, things that are disobedience, we have to be able to cast those off. There will be a sacrificial part, as 2 Timothy 4, 6 states, Paul says that he's being poured out as a drink offering at that point. He was literally poured out as a drink offering as he was beheaded. But we may at least be figuratively poured out as a drink offering for Christ. He must become greater and you must become less. My friends, is there something hindering you from following Jesus the right way? And this is tough. Like As we look at these, we can kind of hear these things. and Sometimes we can kind of miss the application here. When you start to think about the excuses of these three men, are there one or two or all three that stand out to you? And number one, are you hindered by comfort? Does comfort hinder you from following Jesus? Are you hindered by a worldly duty or are you hindered by personal relationships? All of these can hinder us from following Christ the way that we should. And the first question, are you, are you hindered by, by comfort? We live in a society that worships practically, worships comfort and does everything we can to never be uncomfortable you know, our, our HVAC, we want it nice and warm in here when it's cold outside. There's nothing sinful about having it warm in here. But do we worship that more than Jesus? You know, we, we, can, we can sometimes not go out in faith to do something because of comfort. We can say, oh, I'm not going to do that because that might make me a little bit more uncomfortable. may have to eat beans and rice if I go somewhere. I'm not a huge beans fan. My wife knows if I was called to Africa, that would be a tough part on me. But I need to be willing to eat beans and rice if that was all there was. We need to repent of our love for comfort. Is it greater than our love for Jesus Christ? That's a form of idolatry. Next, are you hindered by worldly duty? And there are many things on this side of eternity that are biblical to do. Caring for one's children, loving one's spouse, caring for even their, their, their aging parents, as we saw here, is biblical. Yet there are so many things that we're not commanded to do that we take up and, and do. We need to be sure that we're not being hindered by those worldly duties, even when they're good. Even when there are things that we think, oh, that's a good thing to do, but if Christ hasn't called you to do that, if you're not single-mindedly following Christ, they can hinder you from doing what he really wants you to do. I think the most dangerous part of that can be Christ calling you to do something and you doing something close but not quite there. We need to be willing to do exactly what he calls us to do, exactly what he puts on his heart. There's no negotiating with Jesus in this setting. Sometimes, uh, or, and finally, are you hindered by personal relationships? Personal relationships are important. We need to be the community, the body of Christ. We need to love our families well. However, if God calls you to do something that your family and friends does not approve of, we must follow Christ. Yes, we need to try to be peaceful. We need to be kind and generous and loving as we have those difficult conversations, but our final decision must rest on Christ and his word and not the opinion of even our parents, our siblings, our friends, and even our church. We need to love him more than anyone else on earth. Obviously, we need to seek godly wisdom when we're called to something, when we feel the Lord put something on us that, uh, you know, I want you to do this. We need to seek wisdom. We need to ask people who love the Lord, who are in prayer. But I'm sure when Elisha was called, not everybody was saying, oh, this is great that you're going to go and be a prophet of the Lord and you're not going to be here anymore. I'm sure there were people in his village that were going to be sad to miss Elisha. But he followed Jesus. He severed his tithes with his past life to move to his, for, to, to, to his future. 
doesn't mean you need to cut off all your friends when you become saved or when you do what the Lord wants, but you need to be willing to move and maybe not be near them if that's what God has called you to do. If today you're sensing the call of salvation in Christ, which is the most important call you'll ever receive, if you're feeling the drawing of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you lay down your life, repent of your sins, and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There is no more important decision that you can make in your life. Again, I pray that you lay your old life down like Elijah did and let it just be burned up and given to Christ in order to receive your new life in Christ. Some of you who are saved here, hopefully most of you are. If you're not, I'd love to talk to you about that. But some of you may be sensing a calling for something else. Maybe God's calling you to be an elder or a deacon. Maybe he's calling you to be a women's ministry leader or, or teacher. Maybe to be a missionary locally or regionally or even internationally. God's just putting this stuff on your heart. Maybe it's being a mother or a father. That's a calling. Or maybe it's just taking that first step of joining to be a member of a local church. That can be scary for some people. Uh, whatever the calling is, do it to the glory of God. Go all in. Don't just half do things. Do it all. Be determined to follow him. As we come to a close, I pray that you answer these questions truthfully. Sometimes we're really good at talking about other people, thinking about maybe, oh, I know this person that didn't follow through what they were supposed to do, and I know this person that, that needs to do this, and I know God's got that, and he's gifted them to do this, but, but they need to do such and such. Now, let's, let's look at ourselves. What does God have for you? Is it, hey, God's, God's telling you to do this. You need to be more involved here. You need to step up and lead in this way. Maybe you need to lead your family better. Maybe as dads and husbands, we need to be doing more family worship with our kids and showing and reading the word daily and praying with our kids, talking to them about stuff. Maybe we need to lead our wives better as men. Maybe we need to be more loving as wives. Maybe we need to be more obedient as children. Whatever that is, God has something for us that he has on our hearts. He's never okay with where you're at. I think that's one thing I've learned in the Christian life. As soon as I feel pretty good about where God has brought me, he just pushes in harder, <laughs> and there's something else. He's like, no, you need to trim the fat right there. This is a problem, and, and that's the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, as he continues to sanctify you and make you more and more like his son until you're dead, and then, praise the Lord, we'll have a glorified body given to us eventually, but we'll be present with the Lord as soon as we die. I'm just so, so excited about that. I'm have a lot more work, I think, on earth here, unless the Lord decides otherwise, but so excited to be with the Lord. Again, I pray that you have, you are, you've determined in your heart to follow Jesus Christ, that you are willing to cast off any hindrances that we've talked about, maybe we didn't talk about, and you prayerfully ask God to remove them from your heart. You know, we, we can't necessarily get over these hindrances sometimes, and we need to ask God to remove them from us. Ask for wisdom on how to handle each and every situation that may come your way. How to discern the calls of God, what he wants for you. Sometimes when we talk about that, it can, it can get a little supernatural. It can sound really esoteric. But, but what it really means is being in prayer, being in the word, and walking with other Christian men and women who love the Lord. And God will continue through his word, oftentimes, sometimes even through another brother or sister. He will start to confirm different things, giftednesses that he's given you and what he wants for you at that time. We often, I've never heard the audible word of God, so, but, but when we say that you know, God has spoken to me, this, it, it's through his word. He speaks to us through his word. Be in it. If you want to hear from God, like, well, I haven't heard from God for a long time. Pick up, pick up the Bible. You'll, you'll hear from it. Every time that you read it, you will hear from him. 
Finally, he will guide and direct you. And I just want to ask you again, church, are you determined to follow?